Redeemer Church, we live in the epicenter of cultural Christianity. And by cultural Christianity, I mean that sort of Christianity that syncretizes the worship of Christ with the values of culture. A Christianity that professes to worship Christ, but in actuality just uses Christ as a tool of self-worship. It's a Christianity that only follows Christ when the road seems desirable. We live at the epicenter of that here. This type of Christianity is all around us, and this type of Christianity is filled with lies about God and about sin, about Christ, and about faith. It's, it's not true, and it doesn't save anybody. And this morning I want to highlight three of the prevailing lies that cultural Christianity gives. Lie number one, the God of the New Testament is not the same as the God of the Old Testament. Lie number two, because Jesus died for my sins, my sins aren't a big deal. And lie number three, my spiritual life isn't anybody else's business. The God of the New Testament is not the same as the God of the Old Testament. Because Jesus died for my sins, my sins aren't a big deal, and my spiritual life isn't anybody else's business. When you know this morning that all three of these statements are not truths from God's word, but they are lies from the devil, they do not save, they condemn. Many of you, I'm sure, know that this morning, know that these are not true. And you know that cultural Christianity is not real Christianity. But here's the thing, church, this morning I need you to understand that that doesn't mean that we're not affected by these things. You can know these are lies, and you can know that, that there's this cultural Christian culture that we live in that, that is not true, but that doesn't mean it's not affecting us. Paul tells us in Romans 12:2, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. What that teaches us is that the culture around us is constantly molding us into its likeness. We are constantly being pressed to conform to the patterns of this world, to the culture around us. So, so if we're passive, then we are just like a lump of Play-Doh in the hands of cultural Christianity, to just being molded to its likeness. So even if you know these are lies, if you're passive about it, then, then they're going to affect you anyways. You're going to be conformed to act as if those things are true, to live as if those things are true. And so, and so what's the remedy? How do we keep from being conformed to the culture? Paul says, be transformed by the renewal of your minds. It means that we constantly need to actively pursue the transforming power of the Word of God. We constantly need to be putting ourselves in the Word and saying, I don't want to be conformed to the culture. I want to be transformed by you, God. Only as the Word renews our minds and transforms our hearts will our lives shine the light of Christ into our culture, even a so-called Christian culture. You can open your Bible to the book of Joshua. We are in a series called Receiving the Promises, and today's passage is Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, and I believe that this passage will work as a kind of litmus test this morning to show us how much 
have we let these prevailing lies affect our own thoughts and actions? The way that you respond to this passage will show you, are you believing these lies? Are you believing the truth? And by the time the message is finished, here's my prayers, that we will all be moved together to worship God as He truly is, to rejoice in His grace, and to repent of our sins with equal zeal. Rejoice in His grace and repenting of our sins with equal zeal and passion. And to pursue holiness together as the unified body that He's made us to be. The text is Joshua chapter 7. Before we look at verse 1, I want to remind you of last week's sermon from Joshua chapter 6. It was a, a high moment for Israel. They are in the land. God has promised to give them the land. The first city is Jericho. God gives them these somewhat strange instructions for walking around the city walls. But but in faith, Israel obeys God's instructions and God literally tears the walls of Jericho down for the people of Israel and they experience the victory in Jericho. It's a high moment for Israel that shows their faith and their obedience and God's blessing on them. Now I want to look back at chapter 6 for a moment Verses um, 17, 18, 19 in chapter 6. Joshua is giving the people instructions before they go into Jericho. And he says, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction, and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold, and every vessel of bronze and iron, are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So these were the Lord's instructions to the people of Israel before they went into Jericho, was when you go in, devote everything to destruction. You take none of it for yourself. You see, it was common to take the spoils of victory for yourself in this kind of military victory. But he says, do not take any of it for yourself. Devote it all to destruction. Only keep the precious metals as part of the treasury of the Lord. But it is all for the Lord. None of it is to be kept for yourselves. Well, as far as we knew in chapter 6, Israel fully obeyed. But chapter 7 opens up and tells us that all is not well. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. See a few things in that opening verse. This is information that only we are aware of at this point, and the author is telling us that Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Israel broke covenant. The term is used to describe marital unfaithfulness. Israel was unfaithful to the Lord in that they took some of the devoted things. And then it tells us who took these things. A man named Achan. An Israelite named Achan took some of the devoted things. He did not destroy them, but he took them for himself. And what was the result of Achan's sin and of Israel's breaking faith? The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. This is the Lord who is powerful and mighty and just. And all of a sudden, after this amazing victory at Jericho, Joshua 7 opens and his anger 
is against his people. Well, Joshua and Israelites do not realize what's going on. Look at verse 2 and following. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there, for they're few. So about three thousand men went up from there to the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Israel has just experienced this major victory at Jericho that God gave them. And now Joshua says, well, what's next? Let's go to spy out the next city. They spy out Ai. They say it's not even a big town. Let's just send some of our men. We don't need to all go. So they send 3,000 men. And what happens? 36 of them die. 36 more than died at Jericho. And, and, And Israel has to turn back and run away from the people at Ai. And look at Israel at the end of this, at the end of this verse, what, Look at their hearts. The hearts of the people melted and became as water. We've seen that before, but not with the Israelites. We've seen that with the Canaanites. As the Canaanites have heard of Israel and seen Israel cross the Jordan, their hearts were melting with fear because they knew God had given them the land. But now Israel's hearts are melting because God has allowed them to be defeated. And so, in verse 6, Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua and the elders of Israel are confused, and they are despairing. Out of nowhere, they have suffered this defeat, and now they're afraid that once the other cities hear it, they're all going to come together, and they're going to wipe out Israel. And he, he asked God, why did you bring us over here at all? We, we could have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. We had peace there. We could have stayed there and lived, and, and that could have been our land. Why did you bring us here just to have us cut off from the face of the earth? It seems like Joshua has so quickly forgotten what just happened, so quickly forgotten all that God has shown him and all his promises, but here he just questions God and complains to God and cries out to God and says, Why have you done this? What's going on? It seems like, God, you are not for us anymore. And what will you do for your great name? You know, Joshua's instinct is right, that he, he turns to God in prayer. He, he laments before him. He says, what will you do for your great name? He, there's some good things here, but, but fundamentally his assumptions are all wrong. He's, he's saying, God, why would you let this happen to us? Look what the Lord says in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. 
I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So the Lord responds to Joshua's prayer and complaint and questions by saying, Joshua, it's not me that's the problem. It's you. Get up. Get off your face. You have sinned. Israel has sinned. Israel has broken covenant. Israel has stolen. Israel has lied. And now, Israel, you are devoted for destruction. And even though I said that I will be with you, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Lord rebukes Joshua for his question and says, I'm not the one at fault. You are Israel. Then the Lord comes behind that and he gives him gracious instructions in verse 13. He says, get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst of Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. It's a heavy text. The Lord gives these instructions to Joshua saying, tell the people, tomorrow God is going to find out. God is going to expose God's going to reveal who has taken the devoted things. And when he does, that man and the devoted things and all that he has shall be devoted to destruction, shall be burned with fire because of what he's done. He has transgressed the covenant. He has broken the covenant and done an outrageous thing in Israel. And so, verse 16, Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw him on the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. The Lord exposes Achan as the sinner. Joshua appeals to Achan, confess your sin, glorify God, don't hide what you've done, and Achan makes his confession. And he says, notice, he says that he saw, and he coveted, and he took, and he hid. This is exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They saw the fruit, they desired it, they took it, and they hid from the Lord. This is what we do when we sin. We see and we desire what's not ours to be desired, and we take and we hide. And this is what Achan has done in breaking the covenant. Verse 22, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. 
just like he said. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel, and they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Accor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. And then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. The Valley of Trouble. It's a weighty, difficult passage for us, church. I believe that what the Lord wants to teach us today is to teach us about our sins, to teach us about His wrath, to teach us about how we must respond as His body. And so as we seek to process and apply this passage today, I want to give three lessons Three lessons that Joshua 7 teaches us about our sins from this passage. And the first one is the corporateness of our sins. The corporateness of our sins. You guys notice this. In Joshua 7, God holds Israel responsible for Achan's sin. The chapter begins with the statement, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things because Achan took some of the devoted things. So God holds Israel accountable. When, when the Lord speaks to Joshua, he says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and they have lied. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand. God holds the people of Israel responsible for Achan's sin until the moment he is removed from Israel. And further, God judges Achan's children along with Achan, his sons and his daughters. He judges by the principle of corporate solidarity, that, that it is not just a bunch of individuals, but it is one body, one body and one family. This raises many questions for us and thoughts for us, and, and, and maybe the most practical one we can ask is, does God still do this? Does God still judge sin in a corporate way today? I believe the answer is, is yes and no. There is some discontinuity and some continuity from what we see in Joshua 7 and what we experience today. And so I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. In this passage, God is promising His people a new and better covenant than the old covenant. This is the passage where we get the precious promise that God is going to put a new heart within us that will enable us to, to, to keep His covenant, keep His commandments. And, and it's in this context 
in Jeremiah 31 that God also says this. In Jeremiah 31, verse 29, In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. The point there being that no longer will the children bear the consequences of the father's decision. No longer will the children be punished for what the fathers have done. But a day is coming, a day is coming when everyone shall die for his own iniquity. I'm not going to judge the children for their father's sin, but I'm going to judge the fathers for the father's sin. That day is coming, and it's coming right along with all these new covenant promises. And so there's this distinction. In the old covenant, God communicated the seriousness and the severity of sin by punishing sin to the third and fourth generation. But in the new covenant, God says there's going to be a day coming when no longer will the children be punished for the father's sins. And so there's discontinuity here with us. And we, we understand that and we, we see that practically, that, that God doesn't operate this way today as, as he did in Joshua 7. But at the same time, there is still a reality that, that we do have corporate solidarity. I want you to turn now to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In this passage, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he's addressing the fact that they have allowed a man who has committed a blatant immorality to discontinue in their fellowship. And he calls them to remove this man from the church. Why? Look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul is teaching this principle that, that if you allow this sin to continue in your midst, it will affect the whole body. It cannot stay contained. It will spread. When you tolerate open, unconfessed, unrepentant sin, it will leaven the whole lump. It will affect the entire community. And so there's still this principle of corporate solidarity, this principle that, that our sins affect each other. Our sins affect our families. Our sins affect our local churches. Our sins affect our community. And God calls us to address it. Just as he called Joshua to address Achan's sin, God calls the church to address one another's sins. This is an application for us. We must address one another's sins. We must address one another's sins. We are not a, a nation, and we do not live at the time of the Israelites in the book of Joshua, and we have instructions for this that are distinct from their instructions in Joshua 7. The clearest outline is in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus is instituting the practice of church discipline in the church. And here's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
This is what Jesus' instructions are. The clearest outline we have in the New Testament of, of what we are to do in addressing each other's sins. First, one person sees a brother or sister's sins. And as an individual, you go to them and you, you bring it up with them. And you, and you admonish them and you, and you ask them about it. And, and, and you say, I, I've noticed this in you. And, and you, you call them out of it. And if that person refuses to repent... They refuse to repent, then, then you find one other brother, one other sister, and, and you go with that person this time, and, and you come back and say, we, we want to urge you together to, to forsake that sin, to come out of it. And if they still refuse to repent, and it says you tell it to the church, however that looks, maybe, maybe you tell it to one of your elders first or one of your pastors, but you, but you tell it to the church, that the church as a community now is saying to the sinner, we, we are calling you to repent of the sin, calling you out of it. And if they still refuse to repent, after appeal, after appeal, after appeal, then Jesus says you treat them like a Gentile, you treat them like an unbeliever, you treat them as if they have not put their faith in Christ because they're not acting like they have. They're not living out their faith. And in that way, you remove them from that fellowship until they repent. And church, I want you to see that these are gracious, good instructions. We have, we have so we just did a series through Jonah last summer. And what did we say? We all have wandering hearts. We are prone to wander, each one of us. Any one of us could easily wander into sin. And what kind of church do we want to be in if we are prone to wander people? We want a church that will call us out. We want a church that's going to reach out to us in our sin and say, come back. Don't go that direction. They're going to appeal to us. They're going, they're going to say, don't go down that road. And at the same time, if a little leaven leavens the whole lump, we don't want to be part of a church that allows us to be affected by tolerated sin so that our spiritual lives are in danger. And these, these instructions are, are gracious and generous because they, they restore the sinner. They're aimed at restoring the sinner. At the same time, they're aimed at protecting the body of God's people. And so we must do this, church. We are, we are committed as a church to the practice of church discipline, but, but listen, it starts with individuals going to one, each other, to one another. It starts with you going to your brother, me going to my brother, you going to your sister, one-on-one, and talking about sin with each other. Joshua 7 shows us that God calls his people to address sin in their midst. And we must address each other's sin. We cannot, we cannot ignore this responsibility. Because church, if, if we are a church that tolerates unrepentant sin, then we are a disobedient church. And we will face consequences. And that leads to the second lesson this text teaches us. Not only the corporateness of sin, but the consequences of our sins. The consequences of our sins. In Joshua 7, Achan's sin brought consequences on Israel and on himself. And I want to look at these in turn. First, the consequences that his sin brought on Israel. Put simply, Israel was defeated in a battle that they should have won, and 36 men died because of Achan's sin. Of course, when this happened, we saw already that that, that Joshua and Israel didn't know yet that Israel had sinned. They're mystified by their defeat, and they lamented before God and complained and questioned God for why he would allow this to happen. And God told them, it's, it's, it's not me that's at fault. It's you. You have sinned. You, you, your sin is why you lost the battle. You cannot stand for your enemies while you are at enmity with me. There are a few important lessons for us here. And I think we can apply them both personally to our own lives and corporately to what we just talked about. 
first, just remember, chapter 6, what was it all about? Jericho, victory. God, God did this. God brought this. It was, it was a high moment for Israel. Look how quickly Joshua and Israel began leaning on their own strength and their own wisdom and their own understanding after God had given them victory at Jericho. They didn't stop to pray and ask God, where do we go next? What should we do? They just sent men in, in their own wisdom, they evaluated the situation, they said 3,000 men, and they were soundly defeated because their, their sin was against God. Think if they would have prayed to God. If they would have said, God, where should we go next? What should we do? You know what the Lord would have said? He would have said, don't fight anybody because you have sin in your midst and you will lose. But they did not do that. They immediately followed this victory that clearly God gave them by assuming that God would give them the next victory instead of seeking his face, seeking his favor. And we do this, church. When we we begin to experience God's favor and God's blessing in our lives, we quickly begin to assume it's going to continue and we stop seeking his face. We stop being sure that we're walking in holiness. We, we, we stop striving to make sure that we are walking in his instructions because we just experienced victory. And God would say, don't assume, don't stop seeking me, don't stop seeking my direction, don't stop pursuing holiness. Don't assume that these past victories just guarantee future victories, but continue to look to me the way you already have. Now we can also learn from Joshua's response to the defeat. We, we saw he assumes that God's at fault rather than realizing that Israel has sin. And we are guilty of the same thing when difficulties arise in our lives. I want to be careful how I say this because sometimes difficulty and failure and defeat in our lives are not because of sin. God is very clear that He allows suffering in our lives, He allows trials in our lives for for many purposes. To, to, to make us more like Christ and, and, to, and to work greater faith in us. And it's not always because we have sinned, but church, sometimes it is. Sometimes difficulties and trials come into our lives because we have sinned. And when these things come into our lives, our first instinct is to cry out to God and say, why have you abandoned us? Why aren't you helping us? Why aren't you for us? When God's rebuke is, get up, get off your face, you have sinned. You've sinned, and you need to repent of your sin. We so quickly assume that the difficulties are a fault of God's when when often they are a fault of our own. Not always, but sometimes. And so on the front end and the back end of, of how Joshua and Israel dealt with this defeat, first not even seeking the Lord, and then in responding by assuming the Lord was against them, What do we learn? What's the application? We we need to learn that we should always, every day, continually say to God, search me and know me and try me and see if there is sin in me and lead me in your way. We should always be praying that prayer, church. We should never assume that there's no guilt in us. We should never assume that there's no sin in us. We should never assume that the fault is God's and not ours. We should always be going to Him and saying, show me my sin, show me my heart, and lead me in your way in a dependent, humble attitude on Him. Sin has consequences, and we want to do our very best to honor God and walk in holiness rather than being passive and trusting ourselves until our sin is caught up to us like it did for Israel. 
Well, that was the consequence Israel experienced for Achan's sin, but Achan himself experienced a different consequence. And put simply, because he stole the things that were devoted to destruction, he and all that he had were devoted to destruction. Because he brought trouble on Israel, the Lord brought trouble on Achan. And again, we might think, does God still do that today? Does God still judge like this today? And, and all we need to do is think about the story in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. These, these two visible members of the church who, who lied about the property they'd sold and, and given to the church. They, they lied about how much they'd given, how much they kept to make themselves look better before people. And when they were confronted, they, they lied about it. And God, what did he do? He struck Ananias down. And he struck Sapphira down. This is after Christ died and rose again from the dead. God judged this sin in this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the people in the church in Corinth again are being rebuked by Paul for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And what does the Lord say to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? He says, some of you are sick and some of you have died because of this. God's, think about that. The church is seeing that our members are sick and our members are dying. And it would be easy to say, God, what are you doing? But God is saying, this is because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. People are dying because of your sin. God is still judging sin and giving consequences for sin. And here's the thing. These deaths are just a glimpse of the severity of sin's consequences. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Which means that death, even in itself being a judgment for sin, is just the beginning of judgment for sin. Death is just the beginning of the judgment that sin really deserves. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 describes the judgment that awaits after death by saying, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Death is just the beginning of the wrath of God that awaits the sinner who does not repent. The consequence for sin is the never-ending wrath of God, the never-ending anger of the Lord burning against the sinner. And church, this is severe punishment, but make sure you understand what I mean when I say severe. I don't mean this is God losing His cool, severe inappropriately severe. No, by severe, I mean this is how serious sin is severe. This is how serious sin is. The consequences of sin are severe because sin is an immeasurable offense against the infinite worth of the glory of God. We could never get to the point of saying that's how worthy God is and so I don't need to punish for sin anymore. No, God's glory and worth are infinite. So sin calls forth this infinite, this eternal punishment for sin that can never be paid. This is how serious sin is, church. We think that the, the, the death of Achan is, is severe. Do you realize that sin deserves eternal wrath that will never end? So this is the consequence of sin. And there's only one thing we can do when we realize this. There's only one thing you can do when you realize the seriousness of sin and the severe judgment that you face, and it leads to the final lesson, which is the confession of our sins. The confession of our sins. Once Achan is the one discovered as the one who took and hid the devoted things, look at what happens in verse 19. 
Joshua says, My son, glorify God. Give praise to God. Tell me what you've done. Do not hide it from me. And what does Achan do? He confesses. He makes a full confession. And what happens next? Achan and all he has are devoted to destruction. Church, I need to say that the first time I remember reading this story, I was absolutely shocked. I was in college, and I thought, he confessed, didn't he? I mean, I thought that, I thought that if he confessed, we're supposed to be forgiven. He listened to Joshua's appeal. He glorified God. Isn't God supposed to forgive our sins when we confess our sins? Why was he stoned? Why, why was he judged? I was absolutely confounded by the fact that after he had confessed his sin, he still had to bear the punishment for his sin. Well, of course, this doesn't confound us in everyday life, does it? You know, if someone was charged for murder and then openly confessed that they murdered someone, that they did in fact commit that crime, we would not expect forgiveness. We would expect full justice to be handed down. So why are we so quick to think it's different with God? God operates toward Achan according to his justice. Achan receives exactly what he deserves. He brought trouble on Israel, and the Lord returned trouble on him, and therefore Israel called that place the Valley of Trouble, the Valley of Accord, the Valley of Trouble. It's full justice, and when God's justice is met, his wrath turns away. But of course the New Testament does teach us that if we confess our sins... God will forgive our sins, right? So again, we ask, what's changed? Has God become unjust? Or has God just lightened up over the last 2,000 years? No, we worship the same God today as Israel worshipped then. His holiness demands the same justice. So what's changed, church? I want you to turn with me to one more passage. Look with me at Hosea chapter 2. So immediately following the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Again, this is a context of judgment, a context of God judging his people for their idolatry. But at the end of chapter 2, the Lord begins to make more promises about a new day, a new covenant, a, a, a restoration. And he says that he's going to make his people his people again. He says he's going to betroth them to himself. He says that he's going to betroth them in love and mercy and faithfulness and righteousness and justice. And they're going to know him and in chapter 2, verse 15, and just, just in, in the midst of this, this larger promise, look at what the Lord says in chapter 2 of Hosea, verse 15. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. The valley of trouble brought by our sin, the valley of trouble where we experience God's wrath, God's just punishment toward our sin, God says, I'm going to turn that valley where Achan's body and his remains were, were commemorated by a stone showing the severity of my judgment. I'm going to turn that valley into a door of hope, of everlasting hope in my love and my mercy and my faithfulness and my justice. Church, this promise came to fruition when the sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, bore our guilt. 
the guilt of his sinful people and his death on the cross. Achan bore his own guilt and Israel was declared innocent. But we are the guilty ones and Jesus, the sinless one, bore our guilt. He bore our trouble for us on the cross so that we could live. He satisfied the demands of God's wrath. So it's not after we pay for our sin, but after he pays for our sin that God's wrath turns away from us. Jesus is the door of hope, church. He is the door of hope. God has not changed. Our sin has not changed. His justice has not changed. But He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who took our penalty on Himself so that when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to call you this morning, church, because of God's holiness, because of sin's seriousness, but also because of the grace you've received in Jesus and the the fact that you know when you confess your sin, you know that forgiveness waits because Jesus bore the wrath for you. This morning, confess your sin. Glorify God by confessing your sin to Him. Praise God by confessing what you've done. Don't hide from Him anymore. Turn away from your sin and turn to Him Turn to the door of hope in Jesus Christ and put your faith in Him. We're about to enter into a time of communion. And this is a time where we can do this, church. It's a time where we can turn from our sins, examining ourselves and knowing that we are not called to bear the wrath of our sins ourselves. But we are looking to Jesus as as you eat the body and as you drink the cup. You are saying in your heart as an appeal to God, Jesus is the door of hope. He's borne the trouble for me, Lord. Thank you. I confess my sins to you freely because I know that you have made forgiveness possible for me. I'm going to call the music team to come and